You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. I'm pleased to welcome today's guest, Dr. Clifford Kavinsky. He is the Associate Director for the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship Program, the Director of the Rush Center for Adult Structural Heart Disease, and the Chief of the Section of Structural and Interventional Cardiology. He is also a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at Rush Medical College. Dr. Kavinsky is an expert on catheter-based therapies for heart and vascular disease and is an internationally recognized leader in the use of novel treatments for adults with congenital and structural heart disease. In 2021, he was recognized as a top doctor by Chicago Magazine. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Kavinsky. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start our conversation today talking about the use of non-surgical, minimally invasive catheter-based treatments for structural heart disease at Rush. Can you tell me what do we currently have and what are some of the treatments that are on the way in the near future? Rush University Medical Center and the Rush Center for Congenital Structural Heart Disease has been intimately involved in the development of innovative therapies for congenital and acquired structural disorders. Uh, one of the most important areas has been the development of transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR. Rush has been involved since the very earliest stages of TAVR. Well, we have been involved in all of the randomized trials for patients who are uh, were inoperable, for high-risk patients, for intermediate risk, and for uh, low-risk patients. Uh, and currently, we have a very active TAVR program here at Rush. We are also involved in furthering the applications of TAVR therapy. Currently, uh, the indications for TAVR are for patients who have symptomatic uh, severe aortic stenosis or who generally have decreasing LV function in the face of severe aortic stenosis. Yet there is substantial amount of accumulating data that suggests that patients who have normal left ventricular function and who have severe aortic stenosis and who are asymptomatic may have worse outcomes than patients who are treated. So we are currently involved in uh, what is called the early TAVR trial, which takes patients who have severe aortic stenosis but are asymptomatic and randomizes them to either TAVR or continued surveillance. And uh, the goal of this is to determine where, whether patients with asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis do better when their aortic valve is replaced than patients who are just surveilled. This trial has the potential to change the course of the way we treat patients with aortic stenosis. Secondly, patients with coronary artery disease, patients who have blockages in their arteries and severe aortic stenosis remains a dilemma of how we treat these patients. These patients often don't have angina, but they have severe coronary disease when you do their coronary angiogram in preparation for their TAVR. What do you do with incidental severe coronary artery disease? We have a trial that is beginning called the Complete TAVR trial, which will take patients who have severe aortic stenosis who are being considered for TAVR, who have multivessel or single-vessel coronary artery disease amenable to PCI, and will randomize them to doing TAVR only 
or TAVR followed by PCI of their treatable lesions to see who does better. This is a very important issue that raises questions that need to be resolved. In addition, patients who have only moderate aortic stenosis, this is not severe now, this is moderate aortic stenosis, but who are symptomatic or have depressed heart function, it is currently unknown what is the best treatment for these patients. And Rush is going to be participating in a trial called the PROGRESS trial, which is developed to examine what the effect of doing TAVR is on patients who have symptoms and only moderate severity aortic stenosis. This would be a very interesting study to be involved in. So this summarizes what we're doing in terms of expanding role of TAVR for aortic stenosis. Now, I can move on to talk about the mitral valve, which is the next challenge for us in terms of offering percutaneous solutions. The mitral valve is much different than the aortic valve. The aortic valve is just a door that opens and closes in response to a pressure gradient. The mitral valve is a much more complex structure. It has leaflets, it has an annulus, it has chordal structures, and a papillary muscle. And the very opening of the mitral valve is an active process induced by contraction of the papillary muscles. So treating the disorders of the mitral valve, most commonly mitral regurgitation, is way bigger challenge than percutaneous solutions to the aortic valve. Currently, the only FDA-approved treatment for chronic Mitral regurgitation is transcatheter edge-to-edge repair using the MitraClip system. We have a very active program in MitraClip at Rush University Medical Center, treating degenerative disorders of the mitral valve in patients who are high risk for surgery, and functional mitral regurgitation in patients with diminished LV function. And this is a very important treatment that not only benefits patients in terms of improving their symptoms, reducing their hospitalizations for heart failure, but also has a mortality benefit. As we move forward, we see several technologies that are about to go into randomized trials, and these are percutaneous mitral valve replacement protocols using newly developed mitral valve technologies that allow us to completely replace the mitral valve. There are three different technologies, three different companies that have been working very hard to develop a viable, applicable percutaneous mitral valve technology. And uh, currently, the only one that is active is the Tendine system, which is a transapical placement, but there are two other technologies which are going to be transvenous, transatrial, which hold a lot of promise. So uh, over the next few years, we're going to be focused on percutaneous mitral valve replacement. Of course, these will all be part of randomized clinical trials. And then if we're talking about the valves of the heart, the last valve, we don't want to forget the tricuspid valve. The tricuspid valve has long been ignored, but it is ignored no longer. We're becoming increasingly aware of the implications of chronic severe tricuspid regurgitation and causing heart failure and causing signs and symptoms of right heart failure, recurrent ascites, 
this is a, a bigger problem than we had long anticipated. And isolated surgery for tricuspid regurgitation is not something that has enjoyed popularity because it carries a significant uh, mortality uh, price tag. And I think the reason it does is because people wait just so very long to refer patients for surgical tricuspid valve repair. Currently, we are involved in a trial called the Triluminate trial, which is a redesigned clip system for the tricuspid valve that allows us to put clips on it, much in the way that we do mitroclip in transcatheter edge-to-edge repair. We are currently in the midst of that trial, and it seems to be going well. There are also plans to do two percutaneous tricuspid valve replacement protocols, which will allow us to replace the valve completely. These will be part of randomized trials that we will see probably within the next two years. Patients who have degenerated bioprosthetic tricuspid valves, patients who have malfunctioning uh, tricuspid valve rings are amenable currently to percutaneous tricuspid valve replacement using commercially available percutaneous valve technologies. This is kind of a quick summary of all the research trials surrounding valvular heart disease that is going on at the Rush Center for Congenital Structural Heart Disease. I know that's a very, very long answer to your very simple question, but I hope that summarizes the thing well. And it, there are several exciting opportunities here with the clinical trials. And I want to go into a deep dive on those and some subsequent questions with you. But there's one procedure that's minimally invasive that I wanted to ask you about, which is the mitra clip, which you alluded to before, for the mitral regurgitation. In general, surgery is the preferred treatment for diseased mitral valves. But given that, when would the mitra clip be utilized for both primary and secondary mitral regurgitation? So that's a really good question, Dan. Pretty sophisticated. There are two types of chronic mitral regurgitation. One is called primary or degenerative, and that is when there is a disorder of the valve leaflets themselves. So they may be redundant, they may be congenitally abnormal, and because they're congenitally abnormal, they leak. And when you do surgery on primary or degenerative MR and fix the leaflets surgically, you cure the patient. So surgery is very effective in curing patients who have a primary mitral regurgitation. And surgery remains the gold standard for this treatment. So mitroclip is reserved in this area only for patients who are high risk for surgery, who for whatever reason, other medical problems cannot undergo surgery. Now this is in counter-distinction with the other type of mitral regurgitation called functional or secondary. In this particular setting, the valve structure is normal. The disease resides in the heart muscle itself. The heart muscle is weak, the chambers of the heart enlarge, and as the chambers of the heart enlarge, there are morphologic changes that occur in the mitral valve itself. It gets stretched the leaflets get stretched, the other components of the valve assembly undergo fibrosis and morphologic changes, and that results in valve leaking, regurgitation. 
But the disease does not reside in the valve itself. It resides in the muscle. So just repairing the leaking of the valve doesn't cure the patient of anything because they still have an underlying disease residing in the heart. Therefore, if you take patients with functional mitral regurgitation and operate on them, it doesn't prolong their survival. It doesn't help them as much as when you operate on patients with primary. The current thought is that it's not worth the, all the effort to undergo open-heart surgery for functional mitral regurgitation when the disease process is going on and their survival is unchanged. Therefore, there has been greater emphasis on less invasive techniques for treating functional mitral regurgitation. And when we talk about less invasive techniques, we're talking about MitraClip. MitraClip has been shown to reduce mitral regurgitation and functional mitral regurgitation. It has been shown to improve symptoms of heart failure. It has been shown to reduce hospitalizations for heart failure. And it has been shown to have an advantage in terms of survival. So all these things have been shown in robust clinical trial and has prompted the FDA to expand the indications for MitraClip to include functional mitral regurgitation. In fact, if you look at the guidelines, the recommendations favor MitraClip over surgery for functional mitral regurgitation. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about all the clinical trials that you had mentioned in the introduction that Rush is participating in. In particular, I want to start with the transcatheter aortic valve replacement or TAVR for asymptomatic patients. Currently, TAVR is widely used and used more than surgery for severe aortic stenosis. What is this clinical trial trying to evaluate? As I rambled through at the beginning, I kind of glossed on this, but it deserves some emphasis. The current guidelines suggest that you should replace an aortic valve for aortic stenosis in patients who have symptoms or in patients whose heart is becoming weak from the continuous strain of having to pump blood across this narrowed valve. And these two broad categories were embraced in the guidelines because the only treatment historically was a large open heart surgical procedure. But now we have less invasive ways of replacing an aortic valve. And so we're re-examining the indications for replacing a valve. If the stress to the patient, physical and emotional, is not as great, then the bar might be a little bit lower. So it has long been known that patients who have no symptoms but severe aortic stenosis don't do as well as patients who don't have severe aortic stenosis. So in other words, if you have severe aortic stenosis and you have no symptoms, you still don't have a favorable outcome over the long run. So the purpose of the early TAVR trial is to examine whether we should be replacing valves earlier before patients develop symptoms who have patients who have severe aortic stenosis before they get symptoms before their hearts fail and whether this would be better than waiting for them to get sick or for their hearts to weaken and that is the rationale behind the early TAVR trial and then there are two other TAVR studies that you talked about 
one that involves blockages in coronary arteries, and then the second involving patients with moderate aortic stenosis. Can you profile both of those? Generally speaking, before a patient gets a TAVR, if they have symptomatic aortic, severe aortic stenosis, before we do a TAVR, we always do a coronary angiogram, take pictures of the coronary arteries to see if they have blockages that might affect our decision-making. The problem is, what do you do when you see blockages? Traditionally speaking, revascularization, be it surgical or by angioplasty with stents, is reserved for patients who are either having uh, acute myocardial infarction, unstable angina, or they have chronic heart-related chest pain that can't be controlled by medication. What do you do with the patient who just has severe coronary disease, but it is just incidentally found? and they don't have any of the things that I just described. Do you ignore it? Do you start putting stents in? Uh, Do you do these things before you do a TAVR, after the TAVR? These are important unanswered questions, and this is being addressed in what we call the complete TAVR trial. So patients with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis who are found to have lesions in their coronary artery, blockages which are amenable to PCI, are being randomized to doing the TAVR alone or doing the TAVR followed by PCI of the treatable lesions. And then we will see who does better, and this will change how we treat patients who have coexistent aortic stenosis and coronary disease, because right now we don't know how to treat them. I want to move away from the TAVR studies and talk about one particularly interesting clinical trial around PFO closure. There, Right now, there are two currently approved FDA devices, the Gore Cardioform Septal Occluder and the Implatzer PFO Occluder, which are used for PFO closure. But there's a new technology, Noble Stitch, that leaves barely any trace of being inside the heart. So yes. can you talk about the excitement and the potential yeah, for, for Noble Stitch? There's a lot to talk about here. They uh, have a double disc configuration. So if you can picture the interatrial septum, one disc goes on the left side, one disc goes on the right side, and uh, you leave that those discs behind, and over time they endothelialize and get incorporated into the structure of the heart. But there are complications that can occur as a result of these devices. Some patients can be allergic to the components of them. The placement of the device can trigger significant arrhythmias that the patient can find uncomfortable. Thrombus can form, blood clots can form on these devices. They can theoretically get infected. So, you know, this is just to name a few. There has been long interest in pursuing other techniques for closing a PFO that don't involve placement of a device. And remember that many of the patients that have PFO closure, many of them are younger. These are not elderly people. These are young people who have many years, decades of life ahead of them. So they are very interested in pursuing alternative therapies that don't involve putting a device inside the heart that would be in there for the rest of their days. 
Now, remembering that a PFO is not a hole, it's not a hole in the interatrial septum, it's more of a communication akin to shower curtains overlapping each other. So it's two membranes. This is a sort of an adaptation of the perclose technology where you can take a stitch and you put one stitch through the septum secundum and one stitch through the septum primum. Those stitches are then externalized from the right femoral vein. And when you externalize them, you cinch them together. And as you cinch them together, they seal the foramen ovale. And in so doing, you, you just use a small amount of suture. What's exposed in the left atrium is just is virtually nothing. And uh, you achieve PFO closure without placing a device. This technology is not FDA approved currently for PFO closure. It is FDA approved for other applications, just not PFO closure. But we are embarking on a trial to look at the noble stitch in terms of PFO closure in patients who have had a prior stroke. So if this proves effective, then, uh, you know, this could be the future for PFO closure. There is some relationship between PFO closure and migraine headaches. Rush is participating yeah. in a new clinical trial, the RELIEF study, that evaluates the use of the Gore Cardioform Septocluter for migraine relief. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, this is a very interesting concept. For 20 years, there has been this signal that suggests that patients who have their ASD or PFO closed have an improvement in their migraine headache because migraine headaches are just so very common. There have been numerous observational studies of unsolicited observational studies that patients who have had their PFO closed will volunteer that their migraine headaches have gotten better. We don't really understand what causes migraine headaches. Despite all the research, we still don't have a really thorough understanding of what causes a migraine headache. Some people feel they there is a vascular component to them. Many people feel that it's little microthrombi that cross through an atrial level communication like a PFO and trigger trigger a response. Microthrombi or vasoactive substances. Yet there have been three randomized trials looking at PFO closure to improve migraine headaches, and none of them have been shown to be effective. Uh, many people feel that these, uh, these trials have been negative because the endpoints have not been appropriate. So we have found, some of the researchers in Boston have found, that if you give patients antiplatelet therapy, like uh, Plavix or Prozogrel, that their migraine headaches get better. So the concept is that there are activated thrombin products that cross through the PFO and trigger headaches so that when you take drugs like Plavix, Clopidogrel, or Prozogrel, your headaches get better. So that is forming the basis for the next migraine PFO trial, which will identify patients who have fractory migraineous disorders, 
who respond an improvement of their headaches with drugs like prosegrel plavix. And then those patients will have their PFOs closed to see if their headaches improve after PFO closure. And that's the basis for this trial. There's another clinical trial I want to bring up, and you had talked about this earlier in our conversation, which is the Triluminate trial, which looks at the use of the triclet for tricuspid regurgitation. Can you expound upon the goals for this particular study? We have shown on the mitral valve that the CLIP technology can be effective. It can be effective in reducing regurgitation and improving symptoms of heart failure. As I said earlier, there is not a lot of treatment options for patients with severe tricuspid regurgitation. Surgery is generally not a good treatment. The CLIP system, the MitraClip system, was designed specifically for the MitraClip. It's a robotic device that steers you over the mitral valve. So the question is, can the same kind of technology be adapted for the tricuspid valve? The delivery system for the mitral valve has been redesigned and developed exclusively for application to the tricuspid valve. So the tricuspid valve is much easier to get to. You can just go up the femoral vein, the inferior vena cava, into the right atrium, and there's the tricuspid valve right there. So the triluminate trial takes patients who have symptoms of heart failure related to severe tricuspid regurgitation and puts clips on their valve to see if we can improve the tricuspid regurgitation and improve the symptoms of heart failure. So that's the purpose of the Triluminate trial and we're currently enrolling in this trial. So if there are patients with severe tricuspid regurgitation out there, and I know they are, we would be happy to see them at the Rush Center for Congenital Structural Heart Disease. Lastly, I want to ask you about the trials that Rush is involved with regarding percutaneous mitral valve replacement, which you talked about earlier. Can you go into a deeper dive about these three trials? They're all utilizing different types of percutaneous mitral valves. The first is called the Tendine trial, which is sponsored by Abbott, which is not a fully percutaneous device, but involves what we call transapical puncture. The surgeon has to expose the apex of the left ventricle. You then poke your way into the left ventricle with a needle and deploy the device, the new valve, across the mitral valve from the apex. That's called the tendine device. The trial is called the summit trial. And uh, we are just beginning that now. We feel that the future lies not in a surgical approach, but in a true percutaneous 100% percutaneous procedure uh, from the femoral vein, where you come up the femoral vein, the inferior vena cava, the right atrium, then poke across the interatrial septum, get access to the left atrium, and then deploy the new valve in that direction. And the other two technologies, one is called the Encircle Trial from Edwards, aims to do that, and the last called the Apollo Trial from Medtronic. And both of those utilize technologies which will allow us to do a fully percutaneous procedure using the right femoral vein to replace the mitral valve. These trials are currently going through our regulatory process and should be hopefully available for enrollment probably near the end of the year. It's a really exciting time 
I feel blessed to be able to practice uh, cardiovascular medicine at this time when there's such an explosion, such a such a explosion of technology and thrust uh, towards less invasive techniques to do things that historically we've always done with large surgical procedures. It's uh, particularly satisfying to be able to put a new valve in a patient uh, and send them home the next day. When you think about surgery and how they used to be in the hospital for a week and recover for six to 12 weeks. This is quite remarkable to see. So uh, I'm very thankful that you gave me the opportunity to come and talk about some of the research we're doing here at the Rush Center. Thank you, Dr. Kavinsky.